astronaut Winston Scott's journey to space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Veteran NASA astronaut Winston Scott logged a total of 24 days in space, and his three spacewalks helped pave the way for the building and maintenance of the International Space Station. But his path to space is a winding one, starting in a segregated school in South Florida, a stop exploring music, the Navy, NASA, and more. Scott joins us to talk about that journey, his legacy of helping build the space station, and his hopes for the future of space exploration with a focus on inclusivity. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Winston Scott, a former Navy captain and NASA astronaut, attended a segregated elementary school and later went to college to study music, but his education took a turn and eventually brought him to NASA. His two space shuttle missions were aboard the STS-87 Columbia and STS-72 Endeavour. Ten, nine, eight, we have a go for engine start. Five, four, three, two, one... Booster ignition and liftoff of Endeavour in pursuit of a Japanese satellite. Houston now controlling. Roll program, Houston. Roger roll, Endeavour. The roll maneuver is uh, complete aboard the orbiter Endeavour. The orbiter is now in a head down position on course for 28.5 degrees, 250 nautical mile orbit in pursuit of the space flyer unit for rendezvous and capture on Saturday morning. Here to talk about his journey into space is Winston Scott. He joins us now to discuss the importance of inclusivity in the space program and his history with NASA. Winston, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on. And when I look at your bio, Winston, some 24 days in space, three spacewalks on two shuttle missions, um, it, it's really an impressive career you've had. But it began in, in a segregated school in Miami. But tell me about where Winston Scott, the astronaut, began. Well, Winston Scott, the astronaut, didn't begin until later in life. It wasn't until late in my college career uh, searching for the proper direction for me, winding up in naval aviation, and then that led to the astronaut program. But uh, as a youngster growing up in Miami, I uh, was always interested in the space program and aviation and engineering and technology, but I didn't know what engineering was in those days. We didn't have programs to introduce us youngsters, especially minority youngsters, to, to engineering. I, I didn't know what engineering was. And uh, when it came time to go off to college, again, not much guidance. I thought a person went to college and majored in something at which they were already good. I was a good musician. So I majored in music. Well, college broadened my horizons, introduced me to engineering. And then that led me to the Navy, to an engineering degree, and then all into the astronaut program. So it's kind of a weird, a roundabout way of getting there, but that's, <laughs> that's how it worked for me. Sure did. I, I want to dig into that a bit, but but go back to, to that time when you were in, in, in the segregated school, because I, I think it's really interesting as, as someone who grew up in South Florida, as we were talking before this, that wasn't that far long ago. And the fact that schools were, were still were, were just were still being integrated is is 
really interesting and, and something we tend to forget, right? That's right. You're right. It's not that long ago because if you take a look at me, I mean, I'm not East. I'm not all <laughs> that old. But uh, schools didn't integrate in South Florida until 1965. Let's see. Yeah, 65, 66. Now, Brown versus the Board of Education was, what, 1954? That was the Supreme Court ruling. But schools didn't actually integrate until 1965. And uh, before then, all of the black kids attended black elementary schools and high schools, and the whites attended white high schools. Well, in 65, 66, integration occurred. And uh, many of my friends and I left our segregated uh, schools and integrated. And in my case, I went to Coral Gables High School. So, yeah, it's not all that long ago. And people tend to think, we tend to think that that hit segregated schools was a long time ago. It's way back in history, but no, it's not, not all that long ago. And and uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it happened. And, and you mentioned that when you got to college, um, you know, you didn't know that, that you could be an engineer and, until you discovered it while you were in university. Was it not in, in your school or, or was that not a career path that was brought to you? And do you think that it was because there were different schools that you were going to where that came from? You know, it, no, it was not a career path that was made known to us as, min- as minorities in my school system. Now, having said that, I can point to a, a couple of teachers who were very instrumental. They, they didn't talk specifically about engineering, but they did expose us to science, technology, and the space program as best they could. And the first person that comes to mind is my fifth and sixth grade math teacher, Mr. Clark, Mr. Franklin Clark. I was in accelerated math and English in fifth and sixth grade. This was a segregated Francis S. Tucker Elementary School. Well, Mr. Clark, I thought, had great in, uh, foresight. He would tell us about the space program. He'd bring in newspaper articles and magazine articles. There were no computers in schools in those days. There were no TVs in schools. So we brought in articles and we'd read about it. I can remember reading about Project Mercury, first astronauts who were going to be selected is lost in the space. And that just captured my my, my uh, imagination. Yeah, I was fascinated by it. So Mr. Clark exposed us to those things, and he tried to teach us about science and technology as best he could. I remember in Mr. Clark's class talking about uh, counting in base two, as opposed to the, the uh, decimal system. We used the binary system, learning what base two meant and how to count in base two, as he called it, the binary system, as we, talk, as we call it. I can remember him also talking about the, the space program and early Project Mercury engineers, so, uh, Project Mercury astronauts. I think he, he planted a seed in us, and the seed took root in me, uh, even, even though there was no real opportunity. I couldn't see a path forward to do this. As a youngster, I was always interested in airplanes. I loved aviation shows. I used to watch a show called Sky King on TV, and I watched Lost in Space. I watched Star Trek and all of those on, on television. But they were fantasy to me. They, were, they didn't appear to be anything that was uh, accessible to me. It didn't appear uh, to be real. I like to say it was like watching Superman or Batman on TV. That's cool, but I can't do that. It wasn't until later on, as you said, during my university career, that I sort of accidentally stumbled on what engineering was all about and began to take the math and science and engineering courses and thoroughly enjoy them. F- I fell in love with those courses. And then that led me on to the Navy as a means to complete an engineering degree and into flight training and so on. So again, kind of a real uh, way out, roundabout way of, of getting there. But uh, 
I follow the instincts, follow the desire, and, and lo and behold, it worked out. Yeah, and, and um, that just shows just how important it is to, as you say, plant the seed in in youngsters um, to get that interest going. And and my goodness, what a time for you to be getting interested in space during the Mercury program. Right? I mean, that was a very, very exciting time um, that was just happening just a few hundred miles north of you uh, in, in Cape Canaveral, right? Absolutely. Yeah, very exciting times. Of course, I didn't really, I wasn't uh, astute enough to realized how close Cape Canaveral was. I mean, I was in, in elementary school, but uh, I was just fascinated by the idea that people would actually launch into space on this project, Mercury. And then uh, later on, we were told that they would evolve. And, and uh, we were told back in those days that sooner or later, people would be living in space and we'd be going to the moon back and forth and so on. And we see some of that coming to fruition now, but it was taught to us uh, in, in in those days as a prospect for the future. That's how people would, would live. Even watching the cartoons like the Jetsons, everybody's familiar with the Jetsons, you know, and they're a space age community. You know, we were taught that even though the Jetsons was a cartoon, that it was very, uh, it, it was predictive of how people would be living in the future. And I think it probably still is. So yeah, very important to plant seeds in, in the minds of young people. You had... A naval career, then you joined NASA and two missions, uh, STS-72 and STS-87, uh, conducted three spacewalks. And on those missions, Winston, um, you laid some some very important groundwork for the International Space Station. Let's talk about living and working in space. You were helping us humans get into space for, for now continuously two decades. Um, tell me a bit about your work on those spacewalks uh, preparing for for the assembly of of the International Space Station and what that piece of hardware means to you now, knowing that that you had a hand in that. Yes, I'll tell you what. Uh, there 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 were many of us, of course, including myself, that worked on uh, techniques, tools, procedures, and so on that like astronauts would use to uh, build a space station. A couple of things that I uh, personally performed that were very important is uh, one was actually testing improvements to the spacesuit itself, the EMU or extravehicular mobility unit, fascinating for the spacesuit. Uh, when we were going to build a space station, originally it was going to be in a low inclination orbit, the same as the space shuttle used. But then when Russia became a partner, it was decided to locate the space station at a higher inclination so that astronauts from America and cosmonauts from Russia could both reach the station. Well, this new environment was going to be much colder than previously planned. You know, space is just like Earth. It's colder in some areas on Earth than it is in others. Well, space is the same way. So when Russia became uh, a uh, partner, the location changed. It was much colder. NASA had to modify the spacesuit to handle those super cold temperatures. And uh, it was put on my flight, and I went outside during a spacewalk and tested the improvements to the space suit. So on a night pass, the 45 minutes dark side of the orbit, I perched myself uh, on uh, in foot restraints. They rotated me towards deep space to get me as cold as possible. And I actually conducted testing evaluations on that suit to handle those super cold temperatures. And the suit, of course, worked real well. And that suit is the one that's still being worn by astronauts on the International Space Station today. Very few changes have been made since I tested the, the modifications. 
Uh, some other things that I tested for the space station were uh, actually cable connections. We take it for granted here on Earth, but if you want to plug in an appliance on the other side of the room, you're running an extension cord. Okay, no big deal. You plug it into the wall, you plug it into the appliance. But now think about the super cold of space and going around the Earth over and over and over again. And think about cables ranging in size from maybe a half an inch to the size of a fire hose. Think what the super cold of space will do to those cables. Will you be able to manipulate them? Will the connectors work? Will the fittings work? Will the bayonets, the, the, the rotational fittings? So anyway, I conducted some tests on various cables in space during uh, uh, one of my spacewalks to determine whether or not the, uh, the shielding on those cables will allow the thermal conditioning to uh, keep them pliable enough so that astronauts could work with them whether or not the fittings could be manipulated in space, whether or not the, 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 the length of the cables, the size of the cables, the flexibility, all those things are very, very important. So I got to test some of those things in orbit. And uh, the list just goes on and on and on about the work that my colleagues and I did in preparation for Space Station Assembly. I was just going to say, I, I, I find it humorous um, that NASA was like, we need to test this suit to see if it withstands the cold. Let's put Winston on the stick and put him in the coldest part of space and see what happens. The well, guy from South Florida right. who probably thinks 70 degrees is cold, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's thin, thin South Florida blood. Uh. <laughs> if it could keep me warm, it could keep anybody warm. <laughs> You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with veteran NASA astronaut and retired Navy Captain Winston Scott. Our conversation with Scott continues in a moment. Stay listening. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with veteran astronaut Winston Scott about his time at NASA. Before the break, we spoke about his journey to becoming an astronaut. Now he tells us more about the importance of his three spacewalks, which paved the way for the International Space Station and his vision for the future of space exploration. I was going to say, actually, there's a, there's a lot more to the story that I'm telling. The suit, the, the new, new improved suit, was actually put on the flight ahead of me. And the astronaut went outside to test it. He got so cold, he had to terminate the test and come back inside. They re they uh you know re-engineered the suit, they made some changes, put it on my flight so that I could test it. It was successful with me. So yeah, there's there's a lot of detail, of course, I'm leaving out, but that's one of the more important things that I got to do in support of the space station. And there's some others like Is is there something that you're particularly proud of? Um that, that you also worked on? Yeah, that one I'm particularly proud of. But there's some of the other things that I, I did, and they uh, they were all in space. For example, at one point, myself and my colleagues were uh, support astronauts with the designer of the International Space Station. I was lead astronaut for Space Station Systems Design. So that means myself and my buddies worked with the contractor on developing the actual space station systems. 
So I attended all of the design reviews and worked with the engineers on them. So, for example, the process control water purification system. People don't think about it, but all of the water on the space station is recycled, including perspiration, wastewater, uh, condensation in the air. All of that is collected, processed, and purified so it can be reutilized so that we have enough water to sustain people on orbit. And I participated in the, all of the design reviews of that system along with the contractor to be sure that it worked properly and to be sure that it was accessible, serviceable, and usable by the astronauts on orbit. So that's just one example of some of the work that I did on the ground with the design engineers to ensure that the space station worked properly. I was a part of the team that went to Italy to accept the Italian module. See, so remember, it's the International Space Station. So the uh, multipurpose logistics module was developed by the Italian Space Agency, and our engineering team had to work with them on the design, the development, and the acceptance test. I was a part of that team. I actually traveled to Turin or Torino, if you will, to do the acceptance test on the uh, Italian module. So the list just goes on and on and on of the, the systems that I had the privilege to work on on the uh, ISS. I'm very, very proud that the the station has worked so long and so well as it had. And the water reclamation system is such an important part of that living in space for as long as we have, right? I mean, you could argue that there would be no International Space Station without that technology. There, there's no way you could get enough fresh water up there and dealing with the waste in space, right? Yeah, exactly. That is that is true. There's no way you can, we can resupply enough water. That's true. And you know, when I, when sometimes when I talk to audiences and I talk about drinking recycled wastewater, I have to remind them that we drink recycled wastewater here on Earth. It's either recycled by Mother Nature or recycled by our water reclamation plants. So, yeah, you know, it's that the concept is the same for the space station. We're just doing it by artificial means. And Winston, you, I mean, you and your team have had such a hand in building the station and these critical components um, that allow it to be continually... Um, crude for all of these years, but now the conversation is moving towards the end of the International Space Station. And, and I know it's not right around the corner, but it is within a decade or so. How do you feel about that, knowing that, that this piece of equipment, this chapter in, in human spaceflight history, that you had such an integral part in may soon be coming to an end? Well, it, it, I can't believe how fast the time is going by because it has been up there for a long time. It's been operating incredibly well. And I know that eventually it will come to an end. What I suspect will happen is that as the years go by, we will continue to evaluate the station and the decisions will be made as to whether to actually bring it to an end or to upgrade it, refurbish it, and extend its life. I suspect we're going to get more life out of the station than we are projecting right now. And that's the way it should be. I mean, the thing was only certified for, what, five years? But for 25 years or thereabout, let's see, we launched the first part in 97. So we're out here into 24 now. So it's been a long time. So I suspect what will happen is we'll continue to evaluate it, continue to recertify it until it gets to the point where it's uh, either too unsafe or too expensive to recertify, and then we will bring it to an end. So I I think it has a lot of life left in it yet, and I'm optimistic it'll be up there for a long time. At the same time, commercial companies are are stepping up um, with plans to put commercial space stations into orbit, even bringing commercial uh, vehicles 
to the International Space Station. I know you had a large hand in developing the commercial industry of spaceflight here in Florida. Did you ever imagine that it would be like this? I mean, we just had the the return of an all-European crew um, coordinated by a Houston-based company, Axiom Space, launched by another commercial company, SpaceX. Did you imagine that there would be so much commercial activity in low-Earth orbit at this point? I sure did. I sure did. I I directed the uh, Florida Space Authority for a while, and and, uh, it was uh, Governor Bush. Jeb Bush was in office at that time. And uh, this was between 2003 and 2006. The organization today is called Space Florida, but it used to be the Florida Space Authority. And myself and my staff were pushing for what we see happening right now. I think people take it for granted. They see SpaceX, Boeing, and Sierra Nevada, and all of those Blue Origin uh, functioning here. But they didn't just show up one day and start launching rockets the next day. A lot of things had to happen, and there were many of us who were pushing for it back then. We were pushing for NASA to open up its facilities to the private commercial companies. We were pushing for the 45th Space Wing to open up the Eastern Range. We were pushing for the 45th Space Wing to support commercial space. And I can remember going to Tallahassee and talking to the uh, state subcommittee on transportation and spaceports and so on, and uh, talking about the value of commercial spaceflight, commercial spaceports, and quite frankly, get some pushback. But but it, it happened, and uh, what you see happening now, many of us were pushing for way back then. And so I'm not surprised. I knew that it would, I, I felt, I was sure that uh, it would progress in the way that it has progressed. I'm very, very pleased to see things happening the way they are. The private companies are doing exactly what they do best. See, NASA, the government, is very, very good at doing esoteric, cutting-edge technological things. But the government is not very good at doing things in a cost-effective business-like manner. That's where we need the private commercial companies, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and some of the others. Those are business people. They know how to take that NASA technology and make it uh, usable in a more efficient manner, a more cost-effective manner. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I'm not surprised at uh, seeing what, what's happening now. I'm very pleased with it and very happy that I had uh, I played a small role. Will you be rewarded for your efforts? Are you going to get a flight on one of those commercial uh, vehicles, Winston, going back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of doubt it. You know, I wish I, I, I would love to. I wish they would, uh, there was an opportunity for me to do that. But I, I'm not working for those companies and nobody has approached me about the uh, about going back into space, I, I would I would jump at the chance to go up on one of the uh, Virgin flights of the uh, Blue Origin. Any of those those folks, they, they're doing a great job, and they're going to to continue to do a great job. But some are ahead of others. Of course, SpaceX is the leader right now. Virgin is is uh, leading its own right, but Virgin does primarily touristy flights. And then you got Blue Origin coming along. Boeing is coming along with their CST-100. They're going to launch that pretty soon. Axiom Aerospace is doing a real good job launching on the on the uh, commercial rockets that are supplied to them. So I'm just excited about what's happening. And yeah, if the opportunity came, I would I would take another flight. I, I figured that I would be your answer. <laughs> what I would what I would really like to do though is go to the moon. Okay. See the moon program. Of course, I was I was a student when the uh, Apollo program was going on. And during shuttle days, because we weren't, weren't sending astronauts to the moon. But the opportunity came to take a moon flight. You go up, you know, spend three, you take three days, go to the moon, hang around for a couple of days, three days, come back home. And then, you know, I would love to do that. 
That'd be fun. Let's end the conversation talking about the moon here, Winston. In your early days, you know, you said you, you didn't see people like you that were, were doing these things, but but you did know that it was happening. You, you, you read about the Mercury program and, and the Apollo program. Those were all white men um, in those programs. And now as NASA makes its next chapter in the moon, we're going to see the first black astronaut um, heading to the moon in Victor Glover. Um, reflect on that. How important is that for for young kids out there or, or even adults to see that there is someone like them going to the moon and, and making this giant leap for, for humankind? Incredibly important because until youngsters, young people primarily, and older people too, but young people primarily, until they actually see it, it's not a reality to them. Remember when I talked about being a youngster and watching uh, uh, TV shows about airplanes and spaceships and all and not seeing anybody that looked like me? It was not a reality to me. It was just something I saw on TV or in the movies. But later on, when I saw the first African-American astronaut selected, you know, Guy Bluford, Ron McNair, and, and so on, then it became real to me. I said, hey, you know, this can actually happen. So it's very important uh, to our young people and to our society in general that uh, the, the world of space exploration reflects everybody in the, in the community. So tr tremendously important. It's also important in another sense because it, it, it represents to our country a large pool of talent, which uh, historically has gone untapped. So when you, you, you know, when you get... Uh, minorities and women that are participating in the program. That's a whole, that expands the talent pool from which to draw. That just makes our program stronger, makes our country stronger. So that there's so many different aspects to the, to the importance of, uh, of every, everybody being well represented. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Winston Scott. He is a veteran NASA astronaut, amongst many, many other things. And you heard it here, uh, wants to head to the moon. So if anybody's got a ride going there, uh, please take him with you. <laughs> uh, Winston, thank you so much for chatting with us. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> Likewise. Um, and yeah, if you do get a bite on that, you got to take me with you if they heard it on this show, Winston. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, hey Brendan, you and I are partners. We will we'll go together. That's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review this show to get it in front of more people, well, hey, we'd really appreciate that. You can also follow us on social media. We're at AWTY Space on Instagram. And if you've got a story or show idea for us, please email us. Our address is are we there yet at WMFE.org. We've got more space coverage online. Visit our website, WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Marion Summerall, and our intern is Emily Ching. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.